Hey, good evening, everyone. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now on your phone. If you have a hard copy, Romans chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Uh, Romans is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. The fifth book is Romans. I want you to jump into there tonight. Hey, as you turn there, I want to give you an invitation. Uh, and that goes for anyone in this room, anyone listening later on the podcast or online right now, uh, that the next eight weeks here at Calvary are going to be really significant eight weeks for our future. Uh, and so what's going to happen starting next week is our church here, Young Adults Thursday Nights, and then our weekend services, is going to go through an eight-week series called Calvary Next. Uh, and over the course of those eight weeks, we are going to be talking about what our leadership here believes Calvary is called to do and be over the next 10 years. Uh, and so we're calling this vision Calvary 2030. It's a vision for what our church will look like in the next 10 years. Uh, and the invitation for everyone here is to come be a part of the next eight weeks here to understand where Calvary has been, where we are and where, by God's grace, he's calling us to go. And so I want to invite you to that. Many of you are regulars here. You know and love the, the Lord, and you love Calvary, and you're part of this. I want to invite you in. But then I just want to say this, that maybe some of you are new or newer to us. Maybe you've come for the first time to church in a long time tonight, and I want to encourage you to come this fall to understand what God is doing in our church and what we believe God is calling us to. And so I think there are going to be some things uh, that really stir our hearts for uh, what we believe God is calling our church to do by faith in the next 10 years. Uh, and you're going to hear some big things in the coming weeks. So I want to encourage you to lean in. Uh, and then that really brings us to this chapter of Romans that we're going to look at tonight, this passage. This passage in Romans chapter 3 is really, uh, by all intents and purposes, like the central heartbeat of why our church exists. Like our church exists not because we want to just be together or hang out, but because there is a message that we have received and a message we want to proclaim. And that message is going to be captured beautifully in Romans chapter 3 tonight. And so if you've been with us for a while, what you'll know is we tend to just kind of like work through a few chapters of the book and then be like, go read it on your own, okay? So we're not going to complete all of Romans, but we're going to go into this chapter and really see the heartbeat of what Calvary is all about um, and indeed the heartbeat of what Christian faith is all about. So again, if you came tonight and you're new or newer to church or maybe you haven't been in a long time, I think you picked the perfect night to come because you're going to leave tonight knowing what the central point of Christian faith is. And we're going to see that in Romans chapter 3. So again, if you have your Bibles, open them up. If not, it'll be on the screen here. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 says these words. It says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. So, so let me just teach on this sentence for a second. What, what Paul here, who's writing this letter to Christians living in the city of Rome, is saying is that apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. When Paul says the righteousness of God, here's what Paul is referring to. Paul is referring to a human being's ability to stand in right relationship before God. That's what he's referring to. And if that seems kind of abstract or weird, I want to invite your attention to any time in your life where you kind of had an awkward moment with someone and you weren't sure if you and them were good. You ever had those moments like daily where someone seems like they're in a bad mood and they look at you in a weird way and you're like, wait, are we good? Or if you've ever been in a romantic relationship of any kind, like this is like a constant hourly thing, right? It's like, are we good? Are we, are we good? Are we good? No, you said, uh, and it's like this constant thing of, are we good? And that's like this deep human thing of, we're trying to understand if I'm in right relationship with you, or did I annoy you? Did I frustrate you? Are you in a bad mood about something else, but I've taken it upon myself because I'm narcissistic and think everything's about me, right? That's what human beings do. We try to understand if we are in right relationship with each other. And Paul's burden tonight is for you to understand if you are in right relationship with the God of the universe or not, with the creator of the universe. When he says the righteousness of God, it means am I in right relationship with God? And then it says this, the law and the prophets testify. When you hear in the New Testament, the words, the law and the prophets, it's always referring to the Old Testament. 
They didn't call it the Old Testament. They called it the Law and the Prophets. So here's what Paul's saying. There is this testifying that happens from the 39 books of the Old Testament, this common theme throughout the Bible of how does a human being get into a right relationship with God. And here's what it says, that this happens, and what are these first words? Apart from the law. Now, this is fascinating. And this is the central message of the Christian faith. I know it sounds technical and theological, but don't miss this. Every other world religion says the way to get right with God is to behave yourself. The way to get right with God, the way to make sure you and God are on good terms is to not do the bad things and make sure you do the good things. And so you're supposed to avoid sexual sin and you're supposed to avoid stealing and you're supposed to avoid murder and you do all the good things. You don't do the bad things, right? And then you give money to the church and you help little old ladies cross the street and you smile a lot and don't swear a whole lot and that makes you right before God. Every other system of morality in the world says that. But I don't want you to miss these words. It says, apart from the law, we can be right with God. In other words, you getting right with God has nothing to do with your behavior. It has nothing to do with your morality. Like I need to be abundantly clear. God gives the law. Like God says there's right and wrong and good and bad, and he tells us commands for us to have. But those commands are not to put us in right relationship with him because it can never work. Here's three metaphors, images, and pictures for you to have for what it means to have this moral law that God gives. Because God gives commands and tells us what to do. But it also says that we're righteous by God apart from the law. So here's what the, the law is, this moral commands from God. Three images. Here's the first one. Um, some of you won't recognize this. Some of you will recognize this as an MRI machine. This is an MRI. Ooh, yeah, yeah, MRIs. Um, but, but, but if you've ever had an MRI, here's what you know. You go into the MRI machine. You lay there uncomfortably for a while. You come out of the MRI machine, and you're not any better, right? Like, you don't come out, and you're like, I'm fixed, right? No, the MRI machine, the only ability it has is to show you that there's something wrong with you. And it can identify exactly what is wrong with you. This is the law of God. The law of God does not have the ability to make you right before God. It does have the ability to show you that you are broken, that you are in need, that you are a sinner, like the law of God is able to look at you and say, you haven't measured up. You haven't been everything that God has called you toward. The law is not able to fix you. Obeying the commands of God is not able to make you right. Like the MRI, it's only able to point out what's wrong. Let me give you a different metaphor. Let me show you this one. Train tracks. Here's what I want you to know. The train tracks can tell a train where to go, right? It can tell the train go this way and don't go that way and don't go that way. But train tracks have no ability to actually make the train roll. Now I know like modern train tracks are electric, but go with these ones for a second. They have no ability to make the train run. They have no ability to push the train down the tracks. They can only tell you the right direction to go. The same is true with the law of God. The law of God can tell us which direction to go, but it has no power to actually push us in that direction. See, the law is like an MRI. It shows us what's wrong. It can't fix us. The law is like train tracks. It tells us which direction to go, but we can't actually do that on the law's power. Here's the third one I want to show you, this wonderful stock photo here of this happy couple um, looking at their budget. Now, here's the thing about a budget. A budget is a good thing. It is a healthy thing. I hope as an adult, you are making a budget each month. And if you aren't, you feel a little guilty. That's okay. That's sin. Repent of it, right? But <laughs> I'm joking, sort of. Um, but, but here's the deal. Like A budget is like, here's the plan for our money. But the budget doesn't actually have the ability to make your money go anywhere. If you've ever made a budget and then totally ignored it and just done something else with your money, here's what you'll know. The budget is a good thing that directs you, but it doesn't have the power to actually make you go that direction. So what's the point of this whole talk about the law? Like the law is this good thing that God gives to his people. God says, here's how you should live and here's how human beings were meant to be. But the law does not actually have the power to save you. 
See, see, again, the scandalous claim of Christian faith is this, that you are justified. You are made right before God apart from the law. It goes on this way in verse 22. It says the righteousness, this righteousness, like this right standing, you and God being good, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This first word I want you to look at is this word given. Like I want you to understand when we give something, it's given as a gift. It doesn't say it's earned or it's deserved or it's merited through faith in Christ. It's just given to you. Like God just like freely extends you and he says, I want you to be in right relationship. It's not because of your behavior. It's because I want to give this to you as a gift. Like that's the stunning claim of Christian faith, the scandalous one. All of us want to earn our salvation, but God says, no, I just gave it to you as a gift. And then what does it say? It's given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And I love that word all. Like you do a study of the Greek behind the word all, you know what it means? All. Just means everyone. Like, like, I know that's silly, but it's also like the most wonderful, amazing thing that's true. You know what all means? It means that anyone who trusts in Jesus can receive that forgiveness and have right standing before God. Anyone. People who grew up in church homes and wandered away from Jesus. Yeah, that includes you. People who have sinned sexually and feel gross and disgusting and ashamed of their past. That includes you. People in here who use all kinds of foul language and are caught up in all sorts of gnarly things, that includes you. People who have insulted Christians and demeaned Christians, God says, I want you too. It's everyone. It's all. Like there is no person hearing the sound of my voice right now in this room or online who is excluded from this word all. Isn't that the beauty of Jesus? He just says, everyone come to me. He's like, yeah, 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 you don't believe? That's fine, come to me. You got faith that's tiny, it's like a mustard seed? Yeah, yeah, come to me, I'll make it grow. He says, you can't get your life together? Don't worry about it. I'll put it together, right? This is what Jesus invites us into. You want to talk about the heartbeat of our church? It's that all would come. We're not looking for some kind of person. We're looking for all kinds of people because that's what God is after. Like, that's who we are. It's given to all who believe, all who would come to Jesus. He says, anyone's invited, even her, yes, her. Even that guy who did that thing, most definitely him. And to the person in this room who feels like God would never want you, he would only not want you if this wasn't true. And this is true. It says to all who believe, God wants you. He invites you. He sent Jesus for people just like you, people just like me, who have stumbled and fallen short. And yet God goes, I want that man anyway. I would do anything for that man to be in my family. I would pay for him to be in my family with my son's life. That's the gospel. That's what this church is about. That's why we try to welcome all into it. It goes this way in verse 22. He says, for there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. You don't know Bible words. Jew just means the Jewish people that God selected. And Gentiles literally means any other human in the world. All right, so Jew, Gentile, everyone. And then in verse 23, it says this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you've been in church a long time, you know this verse. You're familiar with this verse. Uh, and I want to talk about this for a minute. This word sinned here in the New Testament. The word sin it actually comes from the word hamartia. Hamartia is not a religious term. It's actually an athletics term. It's an archery term. And hamartia means to miss the mark. Like you pull back the arrow, you shoot, and you miss. Which if you've ever done archery, it looks so easy when you see like Lego last, like, right? But that's not easy at all. You shoot it, you miss, you're off the mark. That's what sin is. Sin isn't just you're this grimy, terrible, awful person. It's like God's designed you to live in a certain way, and you've missed the mark. Or the other metaphor Paul uses here is that you have fallen short. And here's what I want you to know. I'm not here to argue with anyone that you have fallen short of God's standards and fallen short of God's glory, because here's what I know about you. You know this already. Like you really do at the core of your being. And the reason I know that you know you've fallen short of God's standards is because everyone in here has standards 
that are less than God's standards, and you've fallen short of your own standards, right? There's like God's standards, and then there's like Brian Howard's standards, and I still fall short of my own standards. Like, I have a standard. Here's my thing in life. This is like a little thing I have that a lot of you don't have, and I see it because I see you people drive. It's out there. I am not a person who believes in like, it's a red light, but I saw it was green from like a mile away, so I just blow through it, right? And when cars do that, I got so mad. I'm like, you cheated. You cheated. I obeyed the rules. Like, that's my standard. You don't blow through the red light. But then when I'm in a hurry, what do I do? I'm like, no, 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 it was, it was yellow-ish, right? That's what I do. I can't even live up to my own standard. Or I spent all summer standing on stage trying to be out your phones. And I was like, man, you just don't want to like absorb your life in your phone so much. You miss what's going on. And so I'm like, man, I don't want to have my phone out when I'm around my kids. And then the other day I had my phone out while I'm around my kids, right? I have a standard. It's not even God's standard. It's mine. I can't even live up to it. What's my point? I think if I looked at the standards you claim for your life, you wouldn't even live up to your own standards, much less the perfect standards of God. And here's the deal. I'm not saying that to make you embarrassed or ashamed. I'm actually telling this to liberate you. And do you know why? This is so cool. Um, Some of you are so convinced that you're like the only sinner in the room. You're convinced like you're a bad person and everyone here is church folk and they may be kind of frustrating or annoying or weird, true, but also they maybe don't sin like you do. But here's the beauty of Romans chapter three and verse 23. It outs all of us together. Like there's no hiding. It doesn't say there are bad people who have fallen short of the glory of God. It says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Remember the Greek word for all means all? Like it's all of us. No one gets out of this deal. It's like this. So like, um, I have family members who are part of AA and for years I've been attending AA meetings with them to support and encourage, celebrate birthdays of sobriety. And I go into an AA meeting. Here's what you need to know if you've never been in an AA meeting. It is full of all kinds of characters, old and young and kind of surly and kind of sweet and people who have been sober for like a day and people who have been sober for 30 years. And I go in that room, people are all over the place. But you know the one thing people in that room don't struggle to hear? They don't struggle to hear someone saying, I'm an alcoholic and I struggle with alcohol. Because like in AA, here's what happens. When people come into AA, everyone just kind of assumes you're here because alcohol is somewhat of a problem in your life. And here's what we would say of someone who walked into AA. Here's what they would say, that it's not praiseworthy, but it's presupposed. Like it's not, no one in Alcoholics Anonymous is like, I'm so glad you struggle with alcohol. Like no one says that. But it's just presupposed that if you're in an AA meeting, it's because you struggle with alcohol. It's the same with like when I go to the hospital, right? You don't walk through a hospital shocked that there are sick people there. Like, how could all these sick people be here, right? You go into a hospital and you assume that the people who are there are sick and in need of medical attention. And it's not praiseworthy. You're not like, I'm glad you are suffering in that room, right? But it is presupposed. You just build it into your assumption. And here's how we should feel about sin in this world. Sin is not praiseworthy, but it is presupposed. Like, like we just assume everyone we've ever meet, met is a sinner who has fallen short of the glory of God. And you know why that's so beautiful? It just liberates you from this loneliness. Some of you feel like you're the only sinner in this room. Like you're the only sinner in your family or you're the only sinner in this church. It's just a beautiful thing to be able to be like, listen, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm not saying sin is praiseworthy. It is not. I'm not saying it's a good thing. It is not. But when I recognize That sin is just a presupposed part of the human condition. It's just part of what I should assume when I meet any human being. It actually liberates me to not focus on myself and instead focus on the one who can rescue me from that sin. So can I just speak these two sentences over you? Number one, your sin doesn't surprise God. Like he knew you were going to sin. Do you know that's why he sent Jesus to the cross? Because he knew you were going to be a sinner. 
Like Jesus knew you would sin. God knew you would sin. And so when you stumble in your sin, some of you just think God is just shocked up in heaven. He's not. He sees you. He loves you. He knows you. It doesn't surprise God. And then let me just say something that's true of this church. Your sin doesn't surprise us. It doesn't shock us. Like I just assume every person who walked through those doors and is sitting in this room tonight is a sinner. You know why? The guy on the stage is a sinner. We all are. And if we can just recognize that, we don't celebrate it. It's not praiseworthy, but it is presupposed. And so we assume in a church like this, we're filled with sin. And what we do is we confess it, we repent of it, we move on. And when it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that liberates us to not think there's anyone who's in sort of the upper class or lower class of sin. Like all of us are in the same place in desperate need of Jesus. Again, it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and all are justified freely by his grace by the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Tonight, we're going to see three metaphors, three pictures that are given in the scriptures for how Jesus rescues us from our sin, for how he rescues us from how we have fallen short of God's glory. Three different metaphors. This is the first metaphor, the metaphor of redemption. Redemption is a marketplace term. It is a finance, a commerce term. And what it's meant to give us is a picture of how Jesus bought or purchased us or or ultimately paid the price for our sin. Like, let me put redemption to you in this way. So uh, the other day I went out to my mailbox and I checked my mailbox and something beautiful came in. It was a coupon and it was a coupon to a new restaurant that opened in Thousand Oaks. It is a Southern biscuit and chicken place near my house. Oh yeah. They sent it to the right guy, right? I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, send more, right? Right? And so here's what it was. There was like a half-off thing, which you're always like, eh, do I do it? And then it had one that just said, free chicken biscuit when you come in. You just redeem this for a free chicken biscuit. So I've got this coupon, and I'm so excited about it. And at some point here, probably in the next week, I'm going to go into this place, and I am going to hand them the coupon, and they are going to give to me a free chicken biscuit. And I'm going to eat that biscuit. I'll come back. I'll report how it goes. But here's what you need to know. With my little coupon, I'm going to hand it to them. I am going to get something for free. But here's what we all need to recognize. It's not actually free. It's free for me, but it's not free for them. They still have to pay for the biscuit, for the chicken, for the guy behind the counter, for the rental space. They have to pay for everything still, but I get it for free. And that's what a coupon actually is, right? A coupon is where someone else pays, but I get it for free. And that's why we don't say that we spend coupons. What do we do with coupons? We redeem them. That's what redemption is. Redemption means another pays the, pays the cost, but I reap the reward. That's what redemption is. So when you read that Jesus redeemed us, it means he pays the cost, you get the reward. Jesus pays for your sin, you get the salvation. That's the marketplace metaphor of redemption. Jesus pays the cost, you get the reward. Like next time you cash in a coupon for a free something, remember, there's no such thing as a free something. It just moved the cost onto someone else. And in this case, it's Jesus who takes upon himself the cost for your sin and for your fallenness. It goes on this way in verse 25. It says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. I said there were three metaphors of how Jesus saves us tonight. The first is redemption. It's a marketplace metaphor. It's a metaphor of finance and commerce. The second you'll see here is a sacrifice of atonement. Here we move from the marketplace into the temple. And in ancient Judaism, the first Jews who had heard this would totally understand what this temple was all about. 
See, in ancient Judaism, there was one temple, and they would offer sacrifices at that temple day after day, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, and God put in place very specific requirements and practices for how these sacrifices would pay for their sins. Specifically in the Old Testament, if you can just generally look over the sacrifices in the Old Testament, there's three requirements for temple sacrifices. Three only. Here's the first. That the sacrifice had to be spotless. Like you weren't allowed to bring your worst lamb. If you had like 20 lambs, you weren't allowed to be like, that's the sickly one that's going to die. I'll offer it up anyway. No, you had to go get the best one, the perfect one, the most prime and choice one to say to God, I'm giving you my best to honor you. The sacrifice had to be spotless. Number two, the sacrifice had to be slaughtered. We're like queasy in this modern world with killing animals. But if you had a burger today or chicken yesterday, like animals still get slaughtered. And in our minds, we put it out of here. But in the ancient world, they were so familiar with this, of what it meant to kill an animal, not just to like have it die somewhere else and have it be delivered on their plate, but to slaughter this beast. So you had to be spotless. It had to be slaughtered. And finally, the sacrifice had to be a substitute. The idea of these substitutes, of whether it was a lamb or a bull or a pigeon, it was substituted. In other words, this animal, this other, will suffer on my behalf. I will kill this animal. That will be offered to God on behalf of my sin. It was a substitute. And for 1,500 years, for 15 centuries, the people of God offered sacrifice after sacrifice, day after day after day, year after year after year, decade after decade after decade, century after century after century, And those sacrifices were spotless. They were slaughtered and they were a substitute. They so deeply understood the idea of sacrifice. And then 1,500 years after God commands them to start doing sacrifices, a guy named John was out in the wilderness. And John was just like a prophet. He was like this wild man who came before Jesus. And he was calling people to repentance. He was going to like the biggest, baddest people of the day, being like, you need to turn from your sin because God's going to come get you. And he was like this crazy man out in the desert. And at one point, he has all these followers around him. And suddenly, he kind of stops the whole crowd and draws their attention to somewhere else. And he cries out these words that echo through the centuries. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. These people who knew sacrifice has to be spotless, sacrifice has to be slaughtered, sacrifice is a substitute. Suddenly, John says, the sacrifice is right there. That's the Lamb of God, and he points to Jesus. And Jesus comes onto the scene, and everyone understands right away that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the sacrifice who takes away the sins of the world. And how do we know that's the case? Because Jesus was three things. Number one, Jesus was spotless. You know why we can trust him? Because he's the perfect one, the righteous one. He lived a life of exquisite obedience to God, never once failed. In all the ways you and I have failed, he lived up to God's standard. He was the spotless one. Number two, Jesus was slaughtered. Can can I just say this from time to time in here? Um, I think it is really easy to be a Christian in the 21st century and have a not bloody Jesus at the center of your faith. And I think if you want to know the actual Jesus of the Bible, it is a bloody, bruised Jesus on the cross, humiliated, bleeding from his face, crushed in every conceivable way for your sins and for your salvation. And if somehow you have removed a bloody Jesus and just have a happy, smiling Jesus at the center of your faith, you've missed something that's core to Christian faith. Jesus didn't just die, he was slaughtered. Like in every way, he was beaten, he was bruised, he was abused, and then he was killed through crucifixion, the most painful way human beings have ever been killed. With nails driven through his wrists and through his hands, he would hang on the cross, breathing for air. You would die from crucifixion, not through blood loss, but through suffocation. 
As you're hanging from your arms, your fluids begin to go into your lungs. You push up for a breath and then come down. And Jesus on that cross and all of your humiliation and pain would be slaughtered for your sins and for mine. Jesus was the sacrifice who was spotless. He was the sacrifice who was slaughtered. But listen to me, Jesus was our substitute. He was our substitute. He stepped in for our sins. God took the sin out of your account and put it onto Jesus and punished Jesus instead of you. And Jesus didn't do this unwillingly. He did this willingly. Like he stepped into this for you. It's not that the cost just got eliminated. God just didn't go, I don't care about your sins. It's that he intentionally took the blame upon himself. It was like years ago, um, I, I, was, I had my laptop and I was working on something and I ended up spilling my drink all over my laptop and it just shut down in that moment. It was the middle of grad school. I had no money. I had to get papers done. I was so stressed. I was so overwhelmed. So my parents stepped in and said, we're going to buy you a new laptop. Over $1,000. They just bought this laptop and sent it to me. And then they said, you can pay us back over the course of the next year. And I was so grateful because I was going to pay them. I had no idea. I didn't have a job. I didn't know how I was going to pay them back. But I decided, okay, I was going to take this. And I was so grateful. And then one day they just called me up and said, you know what, Brian? Don't worry about the laptop. Like, it's yours. Like, like, just don't worry about it. Don't pay us back. It's our gift to you. Now, in that moment, I could say the debt was canceled. I didn't have to worry about the debt. I didn't have to, that was a free laptop. But here's the deal. It wasn't a free laptop. My parents willingly bore the cost for my sake. That's what Jesus did for you. He willingly bore the cost. He stepped into your place. He was your substitute. So that the blood of Jesus is not some awkward, old-fashioned thing we talk about here. It is right at the heartbeat of Christian faith. A biblical Christianity, there is a bloody Jesus at the center of it who dies for your sins, goes into the grave, and three days later rises victoriously. This is the good news of the Christian faith, that Jesus deals with the sin problem, that we might have a right relationship before God. That is why this old hymn says, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If tonight you don't know Jesus and you haven't come to him, I want you to know your only hope is the blood of a God who sent his son to be the sacrifice for your sins. That may sound crazy, that may sound wild, but it has been the hope of the world for two millennia. And I want to invite you into that tonight. The text goes on this way in verse 26. It says he did there, 25, it says he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this, hold on, let me just stop there. Um, In his forbearance he left sins unpunished. You know what the great thing about our God is? Like he allows us to sin but allows us the leeway that we might come to him for salvation. Like it's not that in the moment I sinned he killed me. It's then the moment of my sin, he said, I'm going to be patient to wait for Brian Howard to come to faith. And here's what I believe. I believe God has been patient for some of you to come to faith, maybe even tonight here in this room. Like I actually believe that God in the universe waits and is patient that you might have an opportunity to receive the forgiveness he offers to you. It says he did this, his forbearance, he left sins unpunished. Like he decided to let it go. He decided to be patient with you. Verse 26, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he may be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You know what the two things this says about our God is? He's just, meaning he's always gonna do the right thing. Sometimes people ask me questions about God. Well, why did God do this? Or why did he do this? Or what about this? What about this suffering in the world? And all I can stand back and say is God is just. He's gonna do the right thing. I'm not just, I don't do the right thing, but God always does the right thing. He is just. But then what does it say? It says that he is the justifier which means not only is he the one who's just, but he's the one who makes you justified. I said there were three images or metaphors tonight. The first was that of uh, a redemption, the marketplace metaphor. 
The second was a sacrifice of atonement. That's a temple metaphor. And here's the third one, that you are justified. This is a courtroom metaphor. Like the idea is that God is the judge of the universe and he looks at you because of Jesus, pounds the gavel and goes, not guilty. In fact, this man is innocent. Not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done for you. This woman is innocent. This man is innocent. That is how the God of the universe sees you. The gavel has been banged. The verdict has been given. You are justified, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And do you know how liberating and freeing this is for us? To know that we're justified? Again, this might just sound like a theological concept for you, but can I just point out something? Something you have been doing your entire life and some of you are not even aware of it. Can I just notice with you tonight the exhaustion that you have had your entire life of seeking approval from people? Some of you, your entire life, have just been seeking approval from everyone. Constantly looking for approval from people, approval from the culture, approval from your parents, approval from everyone, and it is exhausting. Like the most exhausting thing in our world is this constant little thing inside of us where we have to prove that we're right. And you know what the justification of Jesus does? It allows us to not worry about that anymore. Like, like think about your parents' expectations. Some of you have parents who have expectations of you, and it's exhausting to live up to those because they always thought you'd be married by now. Ooh, that was tender. Like they always thought you'd have kids by now. They always thought you'd go to this school. They always thought you'd marry that person. They always thought you'd do this hobby. They always thought you'd play this sport, and you didn't live up to that, and you just feel exhausted by that. For some of you, it's not your parents. It's educational pressure. Like... (laughs) Even if you're not in school anymore, can we just recognize the like low-level trauma of your entire life being told like, hey, this test defines your worth as a human, right? That's your entire childhood, and then you get into adulthood, and it's like you don't have to take tests anymore, but you have to live up to all these other pressures. Like, I'm for school. I love school. I've got a master's degree. I love school. I could do more school in my life. But I just want to say educational pressure is like this constant thing in our life where we feel like we have to live up to it. So whether it's your parents' expectations or educational pressure, professional demands, some of you get out of school, you're like, finally, I'll be able to relax. And then you've got a boss who's like, never sleep, you know? And it's like you're constantly living up to this demand. And the, the horrible thing, school is great because it's like, what do you do after college? You go to grad school. What do you do after grad school? You get a doctorate. What do you do after that? I, I don't know, right? But when you get into the professional world, it's like you never arrive. You can go as high as you want on the corporate ladder and you're always going to be like, if I could just get to the next level and make $10,000 more, then I'll be happy. And you know what happens? You make it to the next level. You get $10,000 more and you're still not happy because it never is enough. Listen, professional demands, cultural assumptions. Like, isn't our culture just exhausting? They're like, just make sure to please be present in every moment. And when you eat food, make sure it's nutritious food, but also make sure you're very present with your food and make sure you Instagram your food, but not too much. And make sure you're posting enough and make sure you're saying the right things. And sometimes you need to speak up, but sometimes if you speak up, it's the wrong thing to do. And there's just like this constant pressure from our culture and you just feel like you never live up. And then for some of you, it's none of those things. It's just your personal standards. So like some of you have this dream or this idea of how your body should look, or you have this dream or this idea of how much money you should make. You have this dream or this idea of how your life's supposed to look like, but it hasn't actually materialized in this way, and it's exhausting. And here's the invitation of Jesus. The invitation of Jesus is to stop worrying about these things. It's to stop stressing out about these things. It's to recognize these things for what they are, to acknowledge them for what they are, but to say, I don't have to impress you because my God is already impressed with me. I don't have to live up to your standard because my God already accepts me. The freedom of Jesus is the ability to say, I'm not stressed about what you think of me because I know what the creator of the universe says about me. That's the invitation of the gospel. It's to let go of these things that just seem to grip us with this exhausting pressure to show ourselves to be enough. 
And I need you to remember that the God of the universe, the judge of all things, has banged the gavel and said, that woman, that man is innocent, righteous before me. That is what it means to be justified. Can I ask a question for some of you tonight? What would your life be like if you only tried to please the one who's already pleased with you? Like, what would your life look like if you just said, the only one I'm trying to please is God and heaven rejoices? He's already proud of me. He already loves me. He already sees me as holy, chosen, and dearly loved. This is the invitation of the gospel. It's not some religious thing we just kind of do on Thursday nights or Sundays. It is this whole life where I leave tonight and I go home into whatever home is and I go to whatever work is or school is tomorrow. And I'm just not trying to impress you because I know what my God says about me. This is what it means to be justified before God. And then here's the final verse we'll look at tonight. Verse 27 says, where then is the boasting? It's excluded. What an interesting thing to land on. Paul's just in all this high theology of how Jesus saves you. And then what's his final thing? He says, do anyone you want to boast over that? On how awesome you are? How together you've got your life? How moral you are? How righteous you are? How holy you are? Paul says, none of it. It's excluded. You don't get to boast. You don't get to be awesome. In fact, where Paul lands is not with theology, but with humility. The defining mark that shows I understand the gospel is not that I have a bunch of theology in my head. That's a good thing. But it is that I walk in humility toward God and humility toward others. Humility, not theology, is the defining mark of someone who has a right relationship with God. And why is that the case? Because humility is the prerequisite for all right relationships. All right relationships. Like all healthy relationships grow in humility. Like, can I just point out to you, if you ever a friend, um, and every time with that friend, you would tell a story, they would one-up your story. You ever had that friend? Don't nudge if it's the person next to you. But like, you're like in high school and you're like, I wrote a four-page paper there, right? I wrote an eight-page paper. You're like, fine, I guess I didn't suffer. You're like, I lost an arm uh, when I was a child. They're like, I lost four arms. You're like, how? Like, they always one-up you. They're always better than you. They always know more. They always know it all. They're always right. Like that kind of friend you don't stay friends with for long. Why? Because humility is the soil in which healthy relationships grow. And when you're with someone who's not humble, but rather with someone who's proud, you don't want to be in relationship with them. Or or like ladies, like let me speak to you. Like none of you want to be in the relationship with a man who is constantly treating you like less than him, right? Like no one wants that relationship where he's constantly talking down to you, condescending to you, treating you like nothing because you're not good enough. Why? Because a healthy romantic relationship grows in humility. Dudes, it's the same way, right? Like no guy wants to be in the relationship with a girl who's constantly and always telling him why he's wrong about everything. Like, that is not a healthy relationship. That is a prideful person, and that is not how relationships grow. So all healthy relationships grow in humility. And you want to know about the relationship with God? You know how it starts? It's not with your humility. It's with Jesus's. Because the scriptures say that Jesus humbled himself even to death, death on a cross. Jesus stoops low that he might be in relationship with you. I'm calling some of you to put your faith and trust in Jesus to start a relationship with God tonight, not because you move first, but because God did. Like, that's what I'm calling you tonight. That's what I want for you. I want you to have this kind of relationship with God because he stooped low to die for you on the cross, go into the grave, and raise up that you might have a relationship with him. A healthy relationship, start in humility. Jesus humbled himself, and I'm going to invite some of you to do the exact same tonight. See, I think the, con- the defining mark of someone who has a right relationship with God is someone who humbled themselves. This is why we see these words in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. This is a verse from the Old Testament, a famous one. It says, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin, and I'll heal the land. Now, I want to be clear about the context here. The context here is speaking to ancient Israel. 
It's speaking to God's people in the nation of Israel. It's not speaking to America. Sometimes people are like, what Americans need to do? This isn't written to Americans. It's written to God's people. And in the New Testament, God's people is the church. It's us. You know who's called to do this? You know who's called to humble themselves, pray, seek God's face? It's us here in this room. This is the invitation to humble yourself, to humble yourself before the Lord, to seek God, to pray to him, to turn from your wicked ways, to repent of your sin, and God will hear from heaven. He will forgive your sin. It says, I will heal your land, which to ancient Israel means I will make things right in your world. And what God says is, come to me. I will put back the broken pieces of your life. I will put them back together. And this is the invitation for all of us tonight. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to do two things as we close. Our band's going to make their way up. Um, And we're going to do two things. I want to call on you if you are a follower of Jesus. If you know Jesus and you walk with Jesus, I have said tonight that the defining feature of the person who has a right relationship with God is not theology, it is humility. And I want to call you to an act of humility. I want to call you tonight to humble yourself, pray, and seek the face of God and turn from your sin. Child of God, follower of Jesus, my call to you tonight is very simple. I'm going to invite everyone in this room who knows Jesus to take communion tonight. So what's going to happen in just a moment is the songs are going to start. We're going to have two songs to close out tonight's service. And if you know and love Jesus, there are communion stations back there, three different stations. There's a gluten-free one back where Pastor Brian Williams is standing if you need that. But I want to call you to invite you to communion tonight. Anytime during the song, if you want to wait until the second song, if you want to wait till the end, I want to invite you to take communion. But here's what I want to warn you. Communion is not an act of strength. It is an act of weakness, of dependence. If you go up to the communion table thinking, I am a really awesome Christian who's got it all together. I'm the best Christian in this room. Don't you dare take communion. We do not take communion because of how strong we are, how awesome we are. We take communion because of how awesome God is and how strong and gracious he is. That's what we do. See, communion is a reminder of the body of Christ broken for us, that we might have a right relationship with God. It is a reminder of the blood of Jesus shed for us. So when I take this bread and drink this cup, it's not that that somehow forgives me. It is an act of me humbling myself, right? Calling on the name of the Lord. It's an act of praying and seeking his face. When I take communion, I walk in repentance and say, whatever sin's been present in my life recently, God, I turn from that. And I turn back to your son, Jesus, who has his body broken and his blood shed for me. In just a moment, we'll start singing. And whenever you're ready, I encourage you to take communion, but don't do so before you take a moment to humble yourself before the Lord. Ask him to redeem you, to turn you from your sin, and to set your eyes on him. You can do it alone. If you're here with someone and you feel like you want to take communion with them, by all means do that. But that'll be what happens during this next song. But let me speak to you tonight. If you're not sure you have a right relationship with God. So communion is something we do to remember what God has done on our behalf. And for some of you, I want to invite you to take communion as your first act of following Jesus tonight. So here's what I know. Some of you have come in and you've never been to church or you don't know Jesus or you haven't been in a long time. You're not even sure you have a right relationship with God. And here's the beautiful good news of the gospel. It's captured in this exact verse that if you would call on God's name, which just means like crying out to him right where you are, humble yourself and just admit, I'm a sinner who is in need of redemption. I've fallen short of the life God wants for me. I haven't lived up to the calling God has put on my life. If you would pray and seek his face, And you know what I love about the term seek his face? It means you don't even really know what you're looking for necessarily. You just know you're looking for God. And that's what I want to invite you to. I don't want to invite you to know Jesus if you know all the facts about him. You might know hardly anything about him. But if you're willing to seek a God who wants to seek after you, tonight I want to invite you to respond. Tonight I want to invite you to indicate that tonight you're putting your faith in Jesus and here's what will happen. 
You turn from your wicked ways. You repent from your sin. You say, my life is no longer my own. I am following after Jesus. I trust in him. And it says, God will hear from heaven. He'll forgive your, he will forgive your sins, all of them, past, present, and future. And he will bring healing. And that is the invitation for you tonight. So here's what I want to do. All across this room, I want to invite you to close your eyes, bow your heads. Uh, we do this for a, a reason, and that is that we believe what the scriptures say when it says that it is appointed once for every human being to die, and then you will stand judgment. And one day you will stand in judgment before God, and what you will be responsible for is what you did with Jesus and his offer of forgiveness. Your eyes are closed and your head is bowed because the person next to you, to your right or to your left, can't make that decision. Only you can. And so if tonight's the night you want to humble yourself, if tonight's the night you want to call on the name of the Lord, if tonight's the night you want to say, I want a right relationship with God, and that means calling out to him, then I want to lead you in a prayer tonight. Prayer's not some super secret Christian prayer. It's just an opportunity for you to pray with me and cry out to the God who hears from heaven and forgives your sins. Tonight, even if it's just one of you, I want to lead you in prayer tonight. So would you just pray this in the quietness of your heart? Say, God, I confess that you're God. I declare that you forgave me. I declare that you created me and that I have fallen short. But God, I call on your name. Would you rescue me from my sin? Would you redeem me? Would you justify me? Would you be the sacrifice for my atonement? God, I give all I know of me to all I know of you. God, would you forgive my sins and make me right with you? And all across this room, if you have prayed that prayer tonight, here's what I want to invite you to do. If tonight's the night you're saying, you know what, I'm putting my faith and trust in Jesus for the first time, and I just prayed that prayer, would you just be courageous enough to open your eyes and look straight at me? All across this room. That's awesome. And here's what I never want to do. I never want to deceive anyone. I never want to push you into anything you're not real with. So just those of you looking at me right now, I just want to ask this question. You can nod your head if it's yes. Like tonight, are you confessing that you're a sinner, but Jesus is a great savior? If so, just nod your head. If not, that's okay. I don't want to pressure anyone. And tonight, if you're acknowledging this, are you acknowledging that Jesus is in charge? You're going to follow him now, and it's not about you, and your life is now built around the one who saved and rescued you. If so, nod your head yes. All right. All across this room, I see you. I know what you're saying. I'm celebrating with you. And here's what I would love, if you're willing and if you're courageous. I would love the opportunity for everyone in this room to celebrate with you, those of you who are looking at me right now. And the opportunity to celebrate is simply for you to stand so that we can say that you are part of the family of God, that you've been rescued and redeemed. And I know that might be scary and I know that might be hard, but let me tell you something. This is a room full of people who have stood just with you and know what that is like. I want to invite you into this family. So if tonight, tonight's your night, I don't want to pressure anyone, but if you're willing to stand, would you stand with me on three to declare that Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord? On three. One, two, three. All across this room, would you stand to your feet? And for the rest of us, can we celebrate what God's doing in our midst? Awesome. Awesome. Um, those of you standing, let me lead a, lead, read a promise of God over your life. If my people, if you... Would call, who are called by my name would humble themselves, which you've done right now. 
and pray and seek his face and turn from your wicked ways, here is what our God will do. He hears from heaven, he forgives your sins, and he brings healing to your life and healing to our land. How does that happen? It happens because God stooped low through Jesus to rescue us. That is the God we believe in. This is the gospel of Christ, the centerpiece of our faith. Can we give it up for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus? Would you stand to your feet right now? Stand up with me right now, everyone in this room. I want to invite us to sing. I want to invite us to worship. I want to invite you to communion sometime during this song, and I want to invite you above all else to humble yourself before the God who hears from heaven, who says, I know you, I see you, I love you, I want you, I redeem you, I justify you, and I call you my own. The God of the universe is calling. I want to invite you to respond in worship now. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we thank you for saving, we thank you for rescuing, we thank you for redeeming. God, as we take communion, as we celebrate salvation in this room, I pray your Holy Spirit would be here in power. May this be just a taste of all you want to do in and through our lives. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. And all God's people said real loud. Amen. Jesus, we